Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 1342 of the Lots on Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Roland, coming to you on a Thursday evening into Friday. And today's show is brought to you by Prize Picks. First time users have 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code locked on. That is prizepicks.com, promo code locked on. We also encourage you to make this podcast, Lots on Hawks, your first listen each and every day across platforms Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts. Today's show is myself and Glenn Willis, friend of the podcast from Peachtree Hoops. Glenn is very, very smart, has an analytical eye, a coaching background, sees all the, all the X's and O's, and is always fun to talk to a frequent guest on the podcast, and it's always good to talk to Glenn. We'll talk about the DeJounte and Trey partnership, the Hawks' defense. We'll have a nice deep dive into how they've been playing defensively so far this season. Some David Millen talk as well on the show and much more. Um, one bit of news here at the top of the podcast, though. The Hawks sent three players to College Park down in the G League on Thursday. No surprises. It was the two two-way guys, Jarrett Culver and Trent Forrest. They were transferred down there. They'll be back and forth all year long, I would imagine. And then Tyrese Martin, the rookie second-round pick, was assigned to College Park on Thursday. Not a huge surprise there either because he's not really playing in a rotation. And uh, College Park opens the season on Friday with a home game. So this is one of those spots where the Hawks could, if they wanted to, bring all three guys back for the home game on Saturday. So no, no real reason not to play them, have some playing time for Tyrese, some development time for all of these guys to join the likes of Tyson Etienne and Chris Silva and Armani Brooks and Malik Ellison, Jared Roden, Brandon Williams, all those guys on the College Park roster and uh, worth watching that game on Friday evening as well. So that's all I have in terms of news. And after you'll hear the intro, and I'll be back with myself and Glenn Willis. You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I am joined now by my friend and fellow Hawks consumer, Glenn Willis. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm good, Brad. How are you doing today? I'm living the dream. I appreciate you doing this in the midst of your uh, busy life, both in the Hawks stratosphere and outside. Uh, I had listened to you and our mutual friend, Kevin Chenard, after the game on Wednesday into Thursday. So I, I know a little bit about what you're going to say on this podcast, I suppose. <laughs> but uh, I do appreciate you coming on. It's been a little while. I try not to bug you too much ever, but especially with the season going and talking to Kevin, all that stuff. And your, uh, your content is always there, though, and I appreciate you coming up. Yeah, I mean, hopefully, I can think of more to say than uh, <laughs> then I'll fill twenty five minutes with Kevin. So hopefully, we'll get into some some new stuff. I, because we're reflecting on their most recent game as is typical, I think we will hit on some things, but uh, hopefully, some some new and things, and we'll hopefully we can expand on some things too. Yeah, I have the same problem where I uh, obviously recorded on my own for thirty minutes after the game on Wednesday. So it's like, all right, don't repeat myself too too much. But honestly. Not the main reason I brought you on, because I, I always want to talk to you about the Hawks. But the thing I wanted to touch on more than anything, uh, and in part because I've kind of neglected it, not on purpose, but you know, not having gone deep in this, is kind of the defense. And I, I really trust your eye on what they're running and kind of how we can get into how this is all. Because, you know, most of the attention, as you well know, has been on Trey DeJounte. And I've talked about the shot profile. And, like, there's lots of stuff to talk about with the offense as well. But defense is a little bit more nuanced, of course. And uh, also, you know, they were – terrible defensively last year for most of the season and this year they've been maybe a little bit better but not like they've been lighting the world on fire so I'm going to leave it open here at the top like what have you made of the defense so far because you know we're eight games in like 10 percent of the season is over and there's little things that maybe have been better but uh certainly some questions still to be answered on, the, on that side of the floor yeah yeah it's it's probably the most interesting to me um 
you know, I remember before the preseason started and you kind of think to yourself, what could we learn from preseason, you know? And, and I always think the defense is where you're going to, to, to get the most. What, typically what you see them run uh, in the preseason is is what they're going to stick with because I don't know if, if, if most listeners know, but teams tend to stick with a fairly consistent kind of scheme um, across the whole season. It's hard to just switch up, you know, an entire scheme in the middle of the season. But, you know, in the preseason we saw them chasing over screens very little switching um, and they weren't bringing their bigs up all the way to the level of the screen. So I, I wouldn't call it a traditional drop. They're getting up in a, a semi support position with their bigs, um, but, but still mostly kind of drop principles of those things. And that caught my interest because they have got players on the roster with the shift towards more defense as Landry uh, Fields has talked about, you know, in the off season, Justin Holiday, Aaron Holiday, um, some other additions as well, um, being able to kind of navigate screens better. And so that's the scheme they've brought into uh, the season. What's interesting about that is you throw into the mix a guy like DeJounte, who likes to gamble uh, for steals, um, which is very helpful. He's very disruptive and creates nice, easy points there. But on the flip side, when you gamble on this, and sometimes even just kind of the tendency to gamble, creates uh, the potential for a, a breakdown of structure with the rest of the defensive unit. And so I think, you know, being a handful of games into this season, uh, I don't want to become too concerned that there's things seem a little disjointed in the aspect of what DeJounte is bringing. Aaron Holiday gives you some of that kind of uh, free safety kind of kind of play as, as well and has some positive impact with it. Both of them do. Um, but when you're early in the season, you're trying to establish kind of a set of fundamentals you're going to rely on game to game to game the dynamics that those players that can be disruptive can sometimes detract from your the one goal of trying to get to a really stable consistent set of principles that you execute that's what i i feel like i'm seeing so far this season yeah and you know you mentioned it with landry and the comments you know we talked about it a lot in the offseason as well but like they clearly were trying to fortify the defense they, they didn't overhaul things. They brought a lot of guys back. You know, it's still a, a Trey Young-led team. It's still a lot of the same personnel up front. You got you know, Collins is back and Kongwu and Capella and Hunter. But they did make some adjustments. And, you know, Murray was kind of a two-sided acquisition. Like, they wanted his offense, too. But um, they definitely improved the, the, the defensive personnel talent-wise, with the exception of losing DeLon. Like, losing DeLon does matter. But everybody else that, that they kind of went out and did that was kind of on that side of the floor. And I think the results have been – Again, a little bit better. Like, you know, this is, it's a very small sample size, but they're allowing like 113 for 100 so far. That's below average. It's not good, but it is better than it was last year. Um, and really, I've said this a lot. I actually want to know what you think about this, too, as sort of a, a theory. I, I kind of think their defense so far has been maybe better than it seems. O not only, but in part because they had a couple of games on offense where they gave the defense like kind of no chance. That Toronto game is the obvious example where – all the turnovers and all the fast break points and all the live balls, like, they kind of had no chance in that game to get stops for the most part. Like they, they didn't play very well defensively in that game, but at the same time, like a 140 defensive rating was not really earned by the defense in that game. It was more, and that's how it always is. Like it's important. I, I'm guilty of this too. We have to remember that offense feeds into defense, defense feeds into offense. Like you have to be able to get stops. Um, you have to be able to maybe make the other team 
go against a set defense more often than not. But I wonder how you see that relationship so far, too, because the offense is like is what it is. It's been pretty good, not quite like dominant so far. But how how do you think that has sort of affected the defense? Because it's still it's the same guys, but you have to, there's like there's that relationship that has to kind of get settled in, too. And if they're not playing as well in offense, especially in ball security, that can be really harmful to the defense. Yeah, and especially with the sample size we have here in the small, in just cut, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, an outlier like Trey turning it over ten times against Toronto is going right. to give you a, a, have a statistical impact rather with the sample size. You know, I was doing, you know, uh, you know, I have more of a kind of a, a coaching approach to watching the game, but I always like to look at stats too and see if what I think I'm seeing is supported by the stats. And yeah, I noticed today they they give up the ninth most. Uh, points of turnovers uh, in the league. And I, I think there's a couple of games that probably kind of jump out at you there uh, and such. I don't know why I would think they're not going to be secure at the basketball equally to the point they were last year. Um, I, I think they do miss Delon a little bit. He's a much, he's a more experienced, a better ball handler than Aaron, but that's that should be on the margins, right? Um, but I, I do think um, the lock shot making for stretches, the turnovers, especially at a couple of games, is has created uh, exactly like you pointed out there uh, a situation where for stretches they are not able to get their defense set. Um, I also think another factor there is like uh, Clint finishing at the rim. You yeah. know, when, you, when your big man misses at the rim, you're, you're not going to get him back as one of your first three, maybe even four guys back in transition. You, so you're not going to kind of get back and get that presence there. So I, I, I think their offense has uh, kind of created some drag on their defense coming into the season. That my thought was, can they get the league average on defense? And they're sitting, I think, at about 20th now, I think right around there. Mm-hmm. Um, too early to, to try to decide, like, is that about where they're going to be the whole season or not? But it's not like they're like ridiculously out of range for where – I was kind of thinking, like, can they elevate the league average? It's agreed. It's, it's, it's close enough there, and I, I think even on their side, you know, they're creating enough to turnovers to kind of help them, you know, generate some things too. But I do think the offensive uh, underperformance on offense has has created a challenge on defense that makes it a little bit hard to try to evaluate the defense in the vacuum. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And obviously, like, like you mentioned, it is a small sample size. I have to be very clear and consistent about saying that out loud. Eight games is not going to tell you all that much about anything. It tells you some little stuff for sure. But um, all of that kind of has to get thrown in the wash because, like you said, the outlier, especially that Toronto game, is really an outlier for what they usually are looking at. And that might have affected a lot of the numbers and all those things. Um, all right, I have a big, question, a big picture question to ask you in a second. But first, a word from our sponsors on the podcast today. Today's show is brought to you by Prize Picks. If you're looking for DFS option this year in the NBA or anything else, check out the warming app at Prize Picks. Prize Picks Daily Fantasy made easy. I love it, and I know that you will too. It's so very easy to use. I can vouch for that. I've been playing on Prize Picks for quite some time now in various sports, really enjoying the daily grind, going through all of the numbers. All you do is pick two to five players and weigh on whether they actually have more or less than a certain number of points or rebounds or assists or steals or all the other stats you might be looking for and might be interested in at this stage. And one of the 10 times on any entry that you're doing, it's not against other people either. It's you against the numbers in the computer. Prospix offers numbers in any sport that you might be interested in, again, across the board. That includes the NBA, but also they have college basketball and the WNBA. NFL, college football, MLB, NHL, PGA, eSports, they have soccer, they have NASCAR, they have tennis, MMA, boxing, cricket, and much more. An entry can be done just a a minute or less, 60 seconds or less. It's that quick and that easy. Prospects also has safe and fast withdrawals, and they're operating in more than 30 states, including Georgia, 
and they're also in Canada. Download the Prospects app or go to prospects.com. Sign up and play daily fantasy sports right now. And first-time users have a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with the promo code Locked On. If you deposit $100, Prospects will match it up to up to up to $100. $50, they'll do exactly that as well. 100% deposit match instantly if you use the promo code Locked On. It's up to $100 at sign up for that instant deposit match. Check it out now at Prospects. Glenn, this is very broad, but I'm going to ask it in a very broad way on purpose. What is your biggest concern with the defense right now? Both short-term, I guess, for full season, however you want to view that. What, what is your number one concern with what you've seen so far? Yeah, so I, I think the biggest concern for me is just the consistency, consistency which with, with which they're defending on ball, right? I, I'm so tempted to say fouls, and, and I know we might talk about that here in a little bit. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think they are that's – yeah, but like the way they turned the game, the way they turned the Knicks game was they got up on the Knicks ball handlers, created more pressure, and were denying uh, dribble penetration pass, denying comfortable uh, dribble angles to screeners. Uh, and that's the way they disrupted everything the Knicks had going on. I want to remind everyone, it's not like the Knicks have the most dynamic ball handlers in the league. So, you know, this is not – necessarily scalable, we'll say, to, like, the teams that have the best ball handlers. But, you know, that was the opponent. So that's that's, that's the results we're kind of looking at. And and I asked myself, you know, you know why ha- has that not been what they've shown on defense more consistently? Um, and I don't have an answer for that. I mean, someone, you know, closer to the team that's interacting with them more regularly than, than me might hear something along the way um, around that. But if you're asking me, like, you know, what's concerning me, it's that they, they're not going to be a league average defense if they don't find more consistency with which um, uh, they show defending the ball, steering ball handlers, funneling ball handlers to their big men, um, things that Nate typically does really enforce with his teams. And the, the defensive mindset he, he kind of brings is around that. So it, it's probably driving him crazy in, in a sense. Um, but I think we saw in the next game that they they can they can do that. Um, uh, so that's 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 my biggest concern is just that I, I I think they absolutely have to have more consistent ball pressure, more consistent um, intensity in terms of how they're impacting ball handlers if they're going to try to get their uh, defensive performance to where it needs to be for them to hit say high forties or fifty wins this year. Yeah, we're on the same page. I wasn't sure what you were going to say. Yeah, this, we didn't. I did not set that up on purpose. I, Glenn did not know I was going to ask that question, but uh, we are on the same page. And like, I, I've tried to kind of say that consistently. Like last year, it might have been the same. I mean, I think I might have said the same thing, the same answer. Like that was maybe their number one weakness last year defensively. And having Murray does help that. But I think you mentioned it earlier. He is not necessarily known for being. Um, he's not bad at this, but his his excellent defensive traits are not like being sound. Like he's he's more he's more of a playmaker defensively. He's not going to be this rock solid. He's kind of small for a two guard for one thing with, with, with this new role. And it's not because of him. Like he's like, he's, he's just not going to change your defense in that way. And I do think that they really are going to have to make life a little bit easier on the back line because you know, this like anytime a team is getting, you know, free lanes to the rim short of maybe prime Rudy Gobert, like nobody's going to be able to make all of that go away. Like, you know, Clint is maybe a half step slower than he was two years ago on is not quite at that level just yet, but Nobody can fix what they're doing so far for the most part at the point of attack. Like, 
And because of the way you have to watch this stuff, and I'm not picking on any anybody's watching habits, but like if you're just kind of casually seeing guys take layups or guys getting to the rim, like you might think it's a it's, it's a big problem. But in my mind, it's kind of been a perimeter problem. It's not been the bigs doing anything wrong defensively. Like they could be, maybe be better across the board, but that's my answer too. I mean, maybe you could say so far the defensive glass has been a pretty big problem, but given where they've been the last few years, like they've been average or better the last two seasons on the defensive glass to the point where like, I don't worry too much about that. It's been a problem so far, but the point of attack defense has been maybe the biggest team issue the last two years. Like, cause offensively there wasn't enough. It wasn't anything that was on that level last year. And because it's more of a continuation from last year, I'm on the same page with you. Like that's gotta be my number one concern too. And they just haven't shown the consistent ability to change it. Like maybe they can, but we're not there yet. Yeah. And, and this team, um, which is a little different from last year, should be able to perform better. They have, yeah, they, they, have better, they have better personnel for sure to do it. No right. So, so for sure. But there are other like nuances too. Like, um, you know, they're not playing drop coverage, but they're actually getting their bigs up to the point of the free throw line, if not a step above the free throw line for like middle ball screens in the middle of the floor, which typically is a little higher than where they were last year. And I think that's one of the things that's playing into the defensive rebounding issues is that Clint and Yucca are playing further from the rim in their, their support positioning uh, around that. So that means other other people have to help help rebound. And that's going to be, you know, Hunter DeJounte should uh, help all season long. He's a wonderful guard rebounder. So I, I too, think that, that that problem is not going to be uh, kind of the, the size of the problem it is now. But, but I you know, if we kind of go back to two years ago when Nate took over mid-year, a lot of red scheme, which is one through four switching, a lot of uh, scheme variation across kind of the season. And it looks to me like Nate is going to go back to your traditional uh, workover screens. Uh, don't switch. Uh, the big man is going to have this, a specific kind of depth to provide a specific kind of support in a specific spot. And you're going to expect the – players that are one pass away from the ball to load up towards the ball with the right spacing players, two passes away from the ball to present near the lane. And, you know, and, and, and Nate is going to kind of drive that as being like, that's 80% of the things we need to do to be successful. If we can nail those things, those basic things, we're going to get the defense that we need. But if players are not fighting through screens, it breaks down. If players are not getting their defensive spacing when they're off defending off the ball, it's going to break down. So that, that execution has to be, um, you know, just so, and that, that may call for a guy like DeJounte to fight his instinct sometime, depending upon situation, opponent and things like that. Right. There's, there are players who like on one end of the spectrum, Draymond Green, who is calibrated and precise in every single thing he does is read base and decision-making on the fly. DeJounte is more like a Russ Westbrook where he's going to have an instinct like, Oh, I feel like, uh, I can get a finger on the ball here. I'm going to go for that, even if I'm vacating my primary responsibility to do that. And so it's, it's you know, the coaching staff and on the players to kind of figure out is how do we um, become more aggressive when the opportunity presents itself that, oh, we have a, a second unit from a team that doesn't have the strongest set of ball handlers on the floor. Maybe we get um, a little bit more aggressive and chase deflections and steals in that situation. I guess other teams where they have a lot at the point of attack, you just need to say sound and packed. Then DeJounte may find a way to kind of turn that instinct off to go kind of chase deflections and turnovers. And uh, so it'll be interesting to see kind of kind of how, how that settles. But they moved away from 
a lot of the one through four switching that they used to run, even into last year, they were doing a good bit of it. And then we saw last night them play zone for like more than two quarters, right? Yeah, um, which was which was a, ma- a matchup zone, uh, which helped them a ton in, in, in that game. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see if it's uh, no, seldom switching zone when we need it. If that's kind of the rest of the way, and even the matchup zone and the man principles are lar- are are like two thirds the same between the the traditional man to man and the matchup zone. The, those principles are still there's a lot of carryover, so it's not like they're asking a, their team to use a completely different set of principles. Uh, the the kind of the construct is a little bit different, but the principles are largely the same across those two. Yeah, and there's some noise in the matchups too. Like uh, I can already think of two games where you know Toronto and Milwaukee, you they had their center guarding arguably like a not a point guard in Siakam or Giannis, but like the main creator of the other team, and the center was on them for half the game. You know, like Capella's guarding Siakam at times, and it's a weird situation for the rebounding situation. But I'm glad you mentioned the, the switching because. Nate kind of said a few times in the preseason and that practice and things like he mentioned switching and they talked about switching like a, a kind of a kind of a lot, not, not not a ton. But, you know, I was expecting because of what he was saying, honestly, on the record, like nothing that For I sure. heard behind the scenes. Like I thought they might switch more and they've switched less to your point. So. Maybe it's matchup based. You know, I wasn't expecting them to throw that zone in there that uh, you talked about for Wednesday night. And I thought the first few possessions were kind of kind of rocky with the zone. And then it kind of they, they settled in and it definitely changed the game. They talked about it after the game as well. And if you watch the tape back, like it, it did change the way they defended. Like there was some help from the Knicks along the way, but it worked. But I wonder if it works now that, you know, teams can see it and it's, it's always different and there's adjustments on that end. But yeah, they've been a little bit more stagnant than I would have thought. And, you know, personnel wise, there's always there's always some questions about how switchable this roster is, you know, especially with Trey, like you're doing a one through four, they, they don't want to switch Trey on the, on the certain guys. That's very obvious the way they have to do that. And maybe that's part of the issue, but like they also knew that when they were talking about switching more coming into the season. So who knows? Um, I, but I, I'm glad you, I, I'm, I'm glad I'm not crazy that they uh, have not really done that. Cause it seems to be that they're not really doing that. Especially I will say this, the second units in particular, when, when Trey and Clint are off the floor, those seem like, prime switching units to me like potential switching right. units if they, if they wanted to drill that and it's not it's never that easy i'm guilty of this too like i'm I, i'm sure you're about to say this like you can't drill one situation all the time and then suddenly be like all right guys go switch now um but those personnel like if you're talking about murray plus you know the holidays um jaylen or john and the Kongwu, like that's a very on paper switching potential group and they just haven't really done it with that, even with them yeah, I agree, and um, I think typically if you see a team like if the hot so so if I think the way an NBA coach the NBA coaches usually tend to think and communicate all these things is they want to establish their base defense, and then and until that's consistent, that sometimes they want to add anything you know to the mix. So it could be the well, that Nate wants to get to mixing in some switching, but he doesn't want to do that until the team kind of gets its base defense, its performance in their base defense. To where they to where they wanted to be, so I wouldn't be surprised if there's more switching. Particularly, I think it's a great point with the second unit. Um, one thing to keep an eye on is that end of quarter ATOs, um, short shot clock. When they start kind of maybe on the fly adjusting to switching in those situations, it may be a little bit of a tease that there's more switching coming because those are the situations where you tend to roll out the switching uh, when you might not otherwise have tendency. So I'm interested to see as as the season goes on. Um, if they can, if they might um, give themselves, if we need to go in this direction, we can go matchup zone. If we need to go in this direction, we can switch. I wouldn't be surprised if, say, three or four weeks from now, we're starting to see that. 
Uh, my guess is just that Nate wants to see them execute their base defense better. Yeah, that definitely sounds like something Nate would want to see. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Nate, Nate likes to see his principles, and we'll come back to that in a second. I promise uh, Glenn a, a very interesting thread on Twitter on Wednesday that we're going to talk about in a moment, I promise you all. But uh, before we get to that, one more break to hear from our sponsors on today's podcast. All right, Glenn, uh, before we get to Nate, I, I do want to ask and sort of go back to what we talked about a second ago about the fouls, because you mentioned it, and so did I, and we never came back to it. They're fouling a lot more. And, you know, some of it's officiating, I think. Um, you and I are not, are not the biggest uh, bang the drum about officiating guys, I don't think. But uh, I think the Hawks have not had the friendliest whistle so far, especially DeAndre Hunter <laughs> um, in particular. But what do you make of it? Because, like, you know, they're bottom five right now in free throw rate allowed. Like, they're, they're fouling a lot. And guys are getting in foul trouble. And in previous years, that was not like an elite strength of theirs, but they kind of were always above average in avoiding free throw attempts and all that stuff. Like, is it just a sample size thing or is there something different that you're seeing as to why they're fouling more? Well, I mean, I have a, th- a theory, I guess. I, you know, so I'll, I'll throw this out. I, it'll take more time to see if this proves out. But, you know, last season, they basically became relying on kind of Clint and then Yucca kind of bailing out possessions because they couldn't hold up at the point of attack, right? Yep. And they look to me like a team that is being challenged to do better at the point of attack and to stay in front of your guy, to contain your ball handler, to steer your ball handler towards the help with the the where the the most effective help is. And it seems like I don't know if this is totally true, but it just seems like in my memory, the way last season Nate was just like yeah, we're never going to do that. My this team can't do that, so we're going to. Yeah, I think I think he gave up. I, I think honestly, maybe not that specifically, but I'm actually. Right. With, I think he really did kind of just say like game fifty, like all right, guys, you know what? We're just gonna we're yeah. just gonna have to figure it out because it's not it's not going to change. <laughs> yeah, Bo- Bogey's knee is 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 uh, not in great shape, and we're, we're playing. Trey is Trey, and, and you know, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and so I so with this roster, my theory is I think he's back to like. Uh, and it must have driven him totally crazy last year, knowing it what Nate values, right? Yeah. To get to back up to a point where it's like, hey, we're going to get back to being impactful at the point of attack, and where they don't, have, this team doesn't have a ton of recent reps, you know, doing that because they didn't uh, emphasize it last year. Now this is a different roster, so to speak, but remind ourselves, uh, Justin was on the Kings last year, one of the worst defensive teams in the league, also. Yeah. Um, Aaron didn't play a ton. Uh, you know, in Phoenix last year, right? Um, and so, you know, guys are coming into a different situation. It's in some cases kind of even coming back into the rotation, but they just look to me like a team that is being asked to uh, execute and perform to a level, to a standard they haven't been held to recently. And they just probably need some time to kind of acclimate to this is what it's like to defend this close to the ball handler. This is what it's like to get up into the ball handler space. Where, where are my hands safe? You know, where are my hands not safe? How much do I need to move my feet? How much do I need to kind of sit and slide? And and those are just defensive kind of fundamentals that, to your point, I don't know if it's fair to say they gave up, but it was de-emphasized, you know, at least. Um, and so I think they're reacclimating to this, getting back to trying to be impactful at the point of attack. And I think it takes reps to kind of get a feel for what's being called, what's not being called. And uh, what um, different kinds of techniques are going to kind of keep you safe versus versus not. I, I think DeAndre has gotten a pretty rough whistle, but I think if that's the only thing you take away from kind of looking at a problem area, you're not serving yourself very well and you have to go beyond that. And I th- so I think it's a better of they need reps. And, and I think the, the more consistent they are at, um, you know, being assertive, depending on the point of attack, they're going to get those right they need and hopefully 
uh, kind of develop some feel for how to better navigate officiating. Yeah, and I'm I'm kind of poking fun about the Hunter thing. He was just, he's just the one guy who's had his individual fouls go through the roof. I think he, yeah, look at it now. He's averaged about three between three and three and a half fouls per 36 minutes in his career, and this year it's five. So like. Yeah. It's a small sample, but he's been in foul trouble three or four times already this season. Um, so that's just – it's a notable thing. Collins has been fouling a little bit more as well. Uh, Jalen has been a higher foul player than what he was replacing. Gallo didn't really foul at all, and now Jalen is fouling like a young guy does. Um, Justin Holliday's an aggressive guy. Aaron's same yeah. thing. Like, you yeah. know, they're all – it's it's it, some of his personnel. It really is. Like, Kevin Herter is a much more – well, I think, I think we both agree he's a, probably an underrated defender. He's not – uh, he's not going to get as many fouls, as many like aggressive decision-making fouls that Aaron or Justin's going to get to. So, yeah. little things. Yeah, yeah. Jalen's a young guy trying to play defense. Gallo. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Gallo last year at times reminded me of like Teodosis is his last time through the league, where you're watching him play uh, defense, and he, he and he could almost imagine he's saying to himself, "At least I can not foul." Right. I'm not gonna I, I wonder I wonder what percentage of foul. yeah, I wonder what what percentage of Gallo's fouls last season were take fouls, like the intentional, you know, grab at midcourt foul. Because he was he, he always did that. Him and Bogey both did that a lot. Now now it's outlawed, of course. But um yeah, Gallo didn't foul except for that, really. But anyway, and Akong was still got work to do there. That's been that's been uh, well trod land, but he's still fouling a lot. Um, you know, it's not gonna, he's not fixed that problem at least yet. So yeah. that's uh, all little things, but they need to probably quit fouling as much to figure out the rest of their defense. But it's a byproduct of being more aggressive. So as long as you foul, as long as you force more turnovers, you can afford to foul a little bit more. And they have forced more turnovers. It's not been a ton, but you know, I, I know it's funny to record this podcast. You and I scheduled this about a week ago. Um, this coming out on the heels of Wednesday when they probably had their best havoc creation game in like a year <laughs> against the Knicks. And they were just like four, you know, DeJounte's changing the entire game with six steals. And it feels weird to say all this stuff now after that game, but that, that was the outlier. I think you can't expect that yeah. to happen all the time. Yeah. And, and we'll, we'll see if some of that sticks. We'll see if they are able to carry some of that or not. I know Hawks fans who watch every single game are probably feeling dubious that the de- defensive Good defensive habits are going to stick because it's been such a challenge for them to kind of kind of get that there. But you know, but you know, we'll see. And, and to the the other manifestation of the fouling issue is that the best way to create a challenge for yourself on offense is to put your opponent on the free throw line because that's their best opportunity to set their defense. And so the Hawks being tenth in offense right now, I think a part of that is 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 related to kind of fouling and letting their opponent set their defense more frequently than. The other probably would if it weren't yeah. for all the No, I agree. Um, quickly, because I feel like I'm contractually obligated to ask you this question before we move on to Nate. Um, do you have any thoughts about the early returns of the Trey and DeJounte offensive pairing? Because, you know, Trey's not been super efficient so far. And I've seen you – know, there were lots of hot takes last night about how this is just, it's just, this is DeJounte's team now after one game and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, I, I saw the eye roll there, Glenn. It was good. Um, but not in a more <laughs> serious way, like, you know, Trey's not had his best stuff for most of the season. I, I think it's more just noise than anything else. But I wonder how you feel about the offense, not necessarily just, like, super detailed, but with, the, with those two guys in particular because they get all the headlines and uh, how it's all working so far. Yeah, yeah. I want to give a thoughtful response, but the eye roll is mostly. <laughs> I hate how it seems like every fan base ends up like say, okay, so we have to pick a guy, and we're going to be right. pro the one guy and anti the other guy. It's like either Team Trey or Team Dejounte, and it's like, 
no need for that at all. Uh, Plus, that approach doesn't help the team. That like, you need them both. They're the two best players well, on the team. So you know, they're the two best players. And even they, like you know, Trey for forever, we've been wanting to see what he was going to look like with Trey having another guy next to him. Right. They're both saying the right things in public. They seem to be getting along very well. Like there's no like issue whatsoever. <laughs> and like Dejounte has maybe the best game of his career. Like I, I don't want to say that definitively yeah. because I didn't see all his games in Antonio, but he was really breathtakingly good last night. And Trey wasn't, so it's like, all right, now Dejounte has the crown. He's the best right. player on the team. So no, it's all it's all just kind of funny to me. But. I, I wish I could stop it from happening, but I know I can't. <laughs> it would be futile any energy into that. But no, so so for me, you know, I was looking at and I put a couple of tweets out before we jumped on here around their drives. Um, you know, they Trey and and Dejounte were both basically top twenty in drives on volume efficiency, generally speaking, last year. Trey didn't have anybody else on his team last year driving the basketball. DeJounte didn't have anybody else on his team last year driving the basketball. And it was sort of like they could consume whatever space that they wanted to uh, for their drives. And so I think there's still some time needed for them to figure out, okay, if I'm Trey, how do I support DeJounte when he's driving the basketball? How do I create spacing? How do I help him get to the angles he likes to use to attack, which is different. DeJounte tends to prefer a little bit of a angle where Trey still likes attack, you know, uh, down the middle, and vice versa. When, DeJounte, when Trey has the ball and he's driving, how does DeJounte uh, kind of help him? So um, I'll keep this brief, but what they're doing reminds me so much of the Kyle Lowry, DeMar DeRozan teams in Toronto when Dwayne Casey was the coach there. And what Dwayne Casey would talk about constantly is that he wanted his team to attack specific angles. So each three-point break down to the rim, that's the angle that – so in case you wanted those guys to attack, you rotate the basketball, attack that scene for the defense can kind of get back. And Trey and DeJounte are not really kind of creating that weak side scene for one another yet. And that's when I think the most opportunity would come if they can kind of find that um, uh, that syncopation, if you will, kind of with how to kind of set to what they're stress the strong side of the defense, rotate the ball, create that scene on the backside. They are not creating that opportunity attacking the weak side scene at all yet. And now – I have to say, DeRozan and Lowry, it was like year three they had mastered that. We're right. killing teams with that yeah. technique. So eight games in, it's it's not fair. But uh, that's something I look for them to start to emphasize is to create that weak side team, attack it, and go. Part of that, too, is that we're still seeing some examples of where Clint and Anyeka are like, do you want a ball screen or do you want me to get in the dunker spot and give you the space to attack? They're, they're, they're feeling kind of early shot clock situations out in that sense too. So, you know, Trey and DeJounte are both awesome attacking with drives. I just think this team needs more opportunity to kind of realize like Anyaka and Clint, when DeJounte is attacking oh, from a wide angle, get higher to start, not behind the bas- the backboard. With Trey attacking the middle, Trey wants his bigs behind the defense all the time. It's a different um, setup and it's a different way yep. to support, support the person that's driving. And so, and for me, it just kind of comes kind of comes down to that. How do they support one another? And and and, and not kind of be, I'll use the word lazy and say, well, I'll just do my thing when DeJounte's off, or I'll do my thing when Trey's off. They've got to absolutely maximize when they're both on and create that stress on the strong side, create that team on the weak side, create the opportunity to attack that and 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 make a ton of the wing attack. That is not manifesting yet at all. And that's I think the th- the threshold where they're gonna take an offense to a could take an offense to back to kind of a, a scary level to me. Yeah. On one hand, the fact that they've been able to maintain 
a top 10-ish offense this season with Trey having his worst shooting season since he was a rookie so far and all of what you just said about how like they're not they're clearly not settled in yet and that's by the way that was expected like people like you and I and Kevin and others like no one should have thought this is going to hit the ground running with those two guys at full capacity it just, it just, it, and, and they said this too like even Nate said it you know DeJounte and Trey were both very confident guys but they didn't like run from this like it was going to take a little bit of time for those guys to figure it out they're both it's not just Trey. They're both in situations where they're not comfortable. Like they're not used to this. DeJounte has been the guy in San Antonio the last two years. And when he wasn't the guy, he was not, a, he wasn't really a guy. He was a defensive specialist early in his career. Like he wasn't supposed to be this guy and credit to him for becoming it. And Trey's never had this guy next to him. So, I mean, there's, there's that broad example. And then there's what you're talking about there. Like there's ways for them to attack. They have to figure out the chemistry with the bigs is a really important one too, especially when they're playing together because they've done it. I think smartly they've paired Clint with Trey and they've paired DeJounte with Onyeka a little bit more intentionally to try to find some chemistry on both. I mean, obviously Trey and Clint already have it, but um, that's a good idea, I think, but they have to figure it out. Particularly. I think the, the, the two of them and Clint have to figure something out because of Clint's, um, shortcomings on offense, like his finishing, you talked about at the beginning of the podcast. You and I both like Clint a lot, but like he does have some shortcomings on offense now. It's it's kind of undeniable. And with Murray's not like a spacer to the corner. Like we talked, we talked about all this stuff, but it was always going to take time. And that's why I have really no concern. Maybe like maybe small things here and there, but in terms of like if they if they've been awful so far, I'd be more worried. But they haven't been. They, they've still been able to be pretty good despite clearly not being a hundred percent dialed in yet. Yeah, for sure. And it's funny, I think back to when Harden was acquired by the Sixers last year, and the first thing, like, and me and Harden were doing immediately was attacking that weak side scene. Harden is a veteran. He's mastered offensive initiation and setting everyone up exactly where he wants. I mean, Trey is, I think, heading in that direction. Trey will tell guys, like, you're in the wrong spot in the other corner, you know, and things like that. DeJounte isn't that kind of personality. It hasn't been in a role where he's dictating, like, the entire – kind of kind of team I, I it's funny because I, I think another aspect is stylistically their difference trey is trey works through his reads quickly he's a fast processor no doubt about that he's on a dra- on offense he's like a draymond to me the draymond level processor sees everything but he wants to let the defense kind of make choices read it and then counter what the defense does Dezante just wants to go go, go at the defense, you know yeah and and you see it when trey is off and then you and i talked about this a little bit offline where like when Trey is off, he just like just relentlessly attacks and attacks and attacks. And it's another layer to this to me is can Trey and DeJounte figure out uh, a, a way to work together that makes DeJounte feel like he can do more of that when he's on with Trey? Uh, you know, and so I think it's I think it's honestly constructive that they're giving each other a little bit of space right now to sort instead of kind of really forcing their style on the other. Clay, Trey is definitely setting up off ball more on a more a greater percentage of possessions and kind of, you know, things like that. So they're giving each other a lot of space. And I, I, I believe fully that's constructive and it will help in the long run, but the goal should be, how do we get DeJounte's assertiveness there? Even when he's on with Trey, how do we get the weak side scene created and leverage the way that he kind of working strong side, weak side to get that created and stuff. So uh, that's what I'm looking forward to come through. I, I don't know that I have a firm expectation around what the timing should be, um, but that's what I'm looking to see emerge in, in the coming weeks to see if there's some indication that stuff's coming along. Yeah. And again, we, we could probably do an hour on 
just that. I mean, we talked about it so much online, offline, everywhere else, and uh, we'll come back to it. I'm, I'm very confident in the, in the coming days, but I want to at least touch on that quickly because I have you here. Um, last thing, I think, because we might go for a little bit on this. Um, you know, you, you talked about Nate and, you know, we, we've kind of made fun of it a little bit. But in reality, like there's been a lot of angst in the fan base for sure. I don't know about the front office yet. I haven't heard this, but um, about whether Nate's the guy and, um, you know, in the middle, especially in the middle of the first 17 minutes on Wednesday, on the <laughs> 23, uh, which is, I think, what prompted you to send out the thread that you did during the game on Wednesday. Um, there was a lot of meltdown mode about Nate. And look, like I've said this, I'll let you say what you think about it, too. I don't think Nate's a, a huge difference maker in a, in a positive realm. I don't think he's a top five coach or top 10 coach. I think he's not embarrassingly bad either. Like this is not a guy who, like, I think is going to make you look silly at any point. He's just kind of a in the broad middle of coaches. And that's very general. But I, that's kind of what I believe. He has his strengths. He has his weaknesses. Um, but anytime somebody asks me, like, if Nate's on the hot seat, it's like, well, if they don't win, he's on the, he'll be on the hot seat. I'm pretty confident about that. What, does, does that mean he's a terrible coach? No, he's not. But uh, is, is, is he uh, Eric Spolstra? No, he's not. <laughs> but uh, I want to give it to you because I don't, don't want to make you recount your entire thread. But, you know, as people who watch every second of every Hawks game, I wonder what you are, uh, where you are, where you are with Nate, because there's this whole discussion about, like, the angst part. And then there's a separate discussion, which is kind of related about whether they might need a different voice to get to the next level. And that's a different discussion because that's, that's a much more nuanced conversation of like, is this guy terrible is a different conversation versus can this guy be the one that elevates you to being a contender down the line? That's a, that's, that's definitely a different discussion, but it's also people are having it at the same time and it's kind of, they, they get, they get crossed. Yeah, for sure. I, I, uh, I hate the, I try to find the right words to, to say how I feel about Nate so that I'm being transparent about it. Um, and it, I'll, I'll say that, um, Nate's not the style of coach I would pick if I were picking a coach for my team, right? I would want someone who's, um, a little bit more And the word I used on Twitter last night was a little bit more of a solution oriented coach. Like my team is struggling. Can I figure out a scheme adjustment or a, a wrinkle that I can give them to help them kind of unlock and, you know, the, the, you know, from the obstacles they're encountering right now. Nate is just not that. He's never been that. He's never going to be that. But I also want to, I also try to be careful. And I said this to Kevin last night that I, when I watch a game, I'd, li I'd like to see two tacticians as coaches kind of uh, adjusting, counter adjusting. And, and I don't that, want that, that, that. That's your brain, Glenn. I, not everyone thinks the way that you do, including me. Like you see stuff that I don't see for sure. So uh, I mean, um, I mean, and, I, the, and the main thing for me is that I think I have to, I think it's only fair that I don't use that preference of mine for what kind of game I like to watch yeah. and have that show up in the way I'm evaluating Nate. Nate is a, a fine coach. Nate's a solid coach, in my opinion. He's not a bad coach, in, in my view. Um, but I do think, like, what Nate gives the team is uh, that when things are going poorly, calm down, focus on the basics. Let's get back to the basics play defense, defend your man, rebound, take care of the ball, move the ball, you know, help each other, et cetera. And, you know, it's kind of funny because I think back in, in my coaching you know, young people that a lot of times it really is about kind of stabilizing mood and and getting people to work past uh, the frustration of a, some adversity that's popping up in the game. And I think Nate, you know, has been around the sport long enough, has a ton of experience, so as much experience in the league as you could really want a coach to have. And, and I think sometimes, like, that's 80% of getting your team to kind of get back on a good path. What, um, you know, and I use uh, kind of Nick Nurse as an example of a, a, a very much of a solution coach that will go triangle two to box on one, the man switching to base. Yeah. In eight possessions, he'll go, he'll work through all of that. Nate's just never, 
never going to do that. It's hilarious to me that basically the, the putting that thread went to a, a matchup zone on the fly as a as an adjustment <laughs> that worked. I was like, oh my god, they did this just to make me look like I don't know what I'm talking about. But but you know, for me, you know, when you have if you have upper upper end talent, and what you need is a team a coach that will hold that those talented players accountable to the basics, the fundamentals, the principles, and that, that, that not being committed to those basics is going to, is what's going to erode what that talent can accomplish. Nate could be a fantastic coach in that situation. Right. And so if that's kind of the plan. If that's the formula you're seeking, Nate can be a, a helpful coach around that. In my mind, if you get to the point where um, you're going deep into the playoffs and you're going to see different, defensive schemes switched up on the fly and things like that. Can you counter adjust? Um, I don't want to sit here and say Nate can't do that. I just think, I think what I feel more confident about is Nate doesn't believe that, that he wants to throw all that at his team. Typically. Um, I don't, I, I don't, I don't, I actually don't want to have an opinion whether he can't or can't because we haven't seen him try. So there's no yeah. fair way in my mind to evaluate that. But Nate is going to always take his team back to the basics, back to the principles, and last night, that was exactly what his team needed. What I will say is that my, my, I guess my theory, a little bit of a theory and belief around Nate is that, like, he was the perfect coach for a Knicks series where the Knicks were um, an under-engineered, under-talented offensive team. And he generated a defensive plan that choked them out of their offense, and that was great. Philly got to the next level, and he was like, we're going to make Embiid for two and a half quarters and trust he's going to run out of gas and see who else has anything for us. And again, they were a flawed offensive team, and they and Milwaukee had a few flaws too that they kind of attacked as well. So if the idea is like, hey, coach, give us a plan that gives us a chance, Nate can come up with that all the time, right? Yeah. He's going to say these are the one or two things we can attack in our opponent, give his team those things, and say we're going to make that make that work. What I think he's less oriented for, again, I want to, I don't want to say he can't do it, <laughs> is when his team is not hitting those two things that they're trying to hit to take advantage of their opponent, how do you kind of pull back and, and recalibrate your plan on the fly, right? I just think he, I just think he doesn't believe that that's the type of solution that he wants to kind of give his team on the fly. He's going to get back to like, no, we know what we're going to try to do. We just need to do it better. We just need to execute it better. And he's he had, uh, the word I like is I think he's very convicted about that belief and that basketball yeah. philosophy which we, we might say stubborn, we might use other words or whatever, but I think he really, really believes that. And they, and I just always want to say there's value there, and yeah. and 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 they can help a, a lot. Can can do I personally think that can kind of get you to a championship? I think I I don't I I think that's less likely, yeah. and I think that you might need a, a coach that and it, it could be Nate with the right mix of assistants where he's empowering assistants to generate those adjustments on the fly. I think like Melvin Hunt was tremendous at that in you know the time that LP was coach. And so there there might be just kind of a, a way to maybe kind of mix that up. A coach like Nate might like Larry Bird, for example, had a lot of success as a coach and empowered Rick Carlisle as an assistant to do a lot of that game management stuff, right? So you see some some models where that has worked sometimes. Um, so I, I don't think that the you know I hear a lot on Twitter like you do. Nate has to go. Nate has to go. Nate has to go. And, <laughs> I, and I don't. And I don't. I don't want to just be dismissive of people who have a. You know, I, so long as someone's not being hateful about it and using, you know, language yeah. that, that doesn't I think help the conversation. I'll engage a little bit here and there. I also recognize in the middle of a game, 
fan emotions are at its highest, especially when things are going poorly. Yeah. Uh, but Nate, Nate's a fine coach. He's a solid coach. He brings a lot as, as a coach, in my opinion. He's not stylistically kind of what I enjoy watching. Um, um, but that's not to say that he can't help this team accomplish a lot this year. So I'll, I'll just kind of leave it there. Yeah, no, I think we're on the same page. And, uh, you know, the, I I try not to get frustrated by the frustration, if that makes sense. Like, I do try to harken back to when I was more of a pure fan and getting just mad at coaches and things like that. And, like, it's a very natural thing. Like, it happens across sports, especially in – I mean, honestly, maybe even less than the NBA than it does in baseball and football. Like, in baseball, it's, like, manager – bullpen things people get mad about that and I, I do that you know people have your own opinions and in football it's play calling or whatever you, however you want to do it like there's always a natural fan thing to get mad at the coach with you when the team's not playing well so there's there's Arthur, that part of it for sure yeah, Arthur um, Smith running the ball down three touchdowns in the that was one that I've not enjoyed <laughs> a few times so, so far so yeah no I uh, that's a good example but yeah it's it's just a really nuanced discussion and I do think that there are concerns and I think not to default I, I try not to do this very very often because it's like an appeal to authority kind of thing. But like, if you talk to people in the league that I think know these coaches and know this stuff, this stuff better than I do, there's Nate has a reputation for what we just said, like being a very solid guy, but maybe not the most high upside guy. Like he's not the most um, inventive or innovative guy. Like he just, he's an old school. He has, he has real value. And honestly, like him taking over two years ago, it didn't single-handedly like make them into what into what happened. A lot of things had to go well, but he was what they had to hear at that point in time. Like he has that. I mean, it's a meme now, but the cool, calm, and collected thing does work. It works. Right. Like he preaches it, and they buy it. But that's not the like X's and O's stuff that you might have someone like Spolster or Nurse have. So I think we, we could do this whole thing again. But I, I think that we're relatively in agreement here. Like I don't think he's going to change your life as a tactician compared to other NBA coaches. But he's he's fine. He's just yep. you know he's he's fine and he's got strengths and he knows it and he's I, I, maybe maybe old school is the wrong phrase but it's one that I always have in my head like Nate, he's just like he's very I'm using if you're not watching on YouTube I'm using it's he's very level he's very he prides I think he prides himself on that too like I think if you get him in a, in a candid moment off the record or just away from the microphones like I think he likes being the stabilizer I think he likes that so. Agreed. And that's exactly what he was when they made the change from LP to him. It's like, you know, the team, there was drama going around. People were not having a good experience. It sounded like that's just the way it sounds. I don't know any of that firsthand or whatever. Don't want to go back to trying to tell that story again. They <laughs> calm things down and stabilize them. And that's, that's his approach is calm down, focus on the basics. We know what we need to execute. Our, our execution of the basic thing is 80% of what's going to, determine whether we have success or not and there's a lot of truth in that there really is a lot of truth in that and so even though if he's not stylistically the kind of coach i most enjoy kind of watching uh you know having an impact on the game one way or the other um then there's still a lot of room for him to be a helpful to have well the organization at some point had to think about if a different type of coach to kind of get them to another level potentially i mean probably is the answer right right and that's that's the way it works. I mean, I know you know this stuff. You've been following this stuff even longer than I have. Like, how many coaches in the NBA take the team the whole time, all the way through, and they stay for a decade? Like that that list is very very small. Even even right now, how many coaches have been entrenched in their jobs for more than four or five years? It just doesn't right. happen very often. Even for good teams, like they change coaches. I mean, I could give I could give examples of this all day long. 
title winning teams have changed coaches within a year or two of winning the title. It's just, it's what happened. There's, there's a, there's a churn there and only a handful of guys are like really entrenched. Your Steve Kerr's, your Spohs, however, I mean, how, how many guys can you name? Like even Doc, like Doc Rivers is a controversial figure. He's been there a long time now in Philly, but like everywhere Doc goes, he tried, like, people were trying to run him off <laughs> and he's right. been like, he's, and he's like, good luck. Hall, he's probably going to go to the hall of fame. Like Doc, Doc Rivers is like probably going to be a hall of fame one day as a coach. Right. And it's like, yeah. And, and, and if you look at the patterns around the league, to, just to your point, like Charlotte had Steve Clifford for a while and they're like, okay, we need like an office of innovator. <laughs> and they went and got Borrego and Borrego had some good impact on offense, but there were some other areas where uh, the team just wasn't performing the basics. And so now they're back to Clifford you know, kind of bringing in some stability and kind of getting the basics in place and the fundamentals in place. And they might, you know, if, if LaMelo is a, a perennial all-star, you know, before too long, they, they might be back at trying to find the, the coach that has a different kind of they style. Can do it. <laughs> exactly. So it's, yeah. it's a moving target. I think it is kind of a moving target, unless you get one of the top guys like a Spo or a Kerr or a Pop. And or, sometimes you don't know who that know. guy is. I mean, that's the thing. That also, there's a lot of randomness here, like especially with coach hires, because – for as much as I try to talk to assistant coaches and you try to get to know these guys and, you know, your Darvin hams and guys who've been around this Hawks team that have become head coaches on the outside, we can never know who's going to be a great head coach as, as an assistant. There's just no way of knowing. Like I've, I've always liked Darvin ham. It's like an example, I guess the example I'll use. I, he's the guy I talked to the most. He was in Atlanta. I always thought he'd be, he, that he'd be, he'd be a good head coach, but until you do it, nobody knows. Eric Spolster was a video guy. Like right. and he became a top, you know, 10, 15 coach of all time, potentially like he's, you know, it's one of those things where, like you have Nick nurse was not a high profile name. Like no one knew who Nick nurse was outside of the league. Like no one knows that. But then you get into like Greg Popovich was the GM of the Spurs and hired himself as the coach. Right. So like right. think about the most prominent examples of head coaches that everyone thinks now are awesome. None of those guys were supposed to be awesome. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, Willie green to the average NBA yeah. fan plucking like, out of nowhere like last year. Green. He was a very respected assistant coach and did Hawks a great legend, job with the Falcons last year. And I, I, and I don't know if he's going to survive it, but I think Steven Silas is doing a great job in Houston. I think, I think the stuff that he gets his young team to execute blows me away. Times. And he, he might have to land his second job before he gets to a point where he has a, an established enough roster to kind of show what he can do. Um, you know, but I like what JB Bickerstaff is getting out of Cleveland. I, I'm like, when he, they hired him, I'm like, what are you they they play really good basketball up there, so it, it is kind of a moving target, and it's trying to get the right fit with what where your team is, what what that next pl- uh, threshold is your team's trying to get to, and all of that. But there, there's there's no urgency right now for the Hawks to like be looking at a at a coaching change. Big picture, is there maybe a need to kind of think about uh, the way to kind of evolve the organization forward, and might coaching be part of that? To your point, I think that's probably. In the future, it almost always is for every organization that's not already contender. So that's not like a some shocking statement. Um, but I, I think people who think like Nate is causing all the issues, I don't disagree with that. Although I'll say I, I understand because there are times I watch, I'm like, can we do something different, right? And uh, but Nate's gonna be like, take care of the ball, defend your man, rebound, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I have to say, like, even thinking back to my own coaching background, it's like when I'm trying to get my team to kind of clean things up, it's like I often throw a new idea at them. I'm like, no, just do the basic stuff better. And 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 there's there's a lot of value to that. And there's there's room for that kind of coach to be effective. So, I, you know, we'll, we'll see if uh, 
the in-game adjustment, like the matchup zone against the Knicks, starts to become something that they that this coaching staff as a team can kind of you know manage through in games. I would be thrilled and uh, and be attracted to getting to watch that you know a little bit more often. But uh, again, I don't want to put my personal preference into kind of the formula I'm using to evaluate the coach. I think that's unfair. And that is why you are uh, yourself, Glenn. You're very level-headed on these things. You're uh, you're a, you're an artist and a technician. All those things wrapped into one. I do appreciate you coming on the podcast to lend your expertise. And I always say it. I know I said it during this podcast, but uh, you see things that I don't see. You are uh, you have the coaching background that I don't have. I do make uh, observations, but I always miss things and I learn from you. So I appreciate appreciate you coming on always. I hope you, hopefully people are following you across platforms and listening to Deep Breath. Uh, you and Kevin Chenard. Hello, Kevin. <laughs> On the 829 podcast. I love Kevin. Kevin's been on this show. I am Kevin and I spend a lot of time together from the months of October through the months of May. In fact, uh, the Hawks have a four-game, six-night stretch at home coming up, and Kevin and I will be side by side for most of that. So pray for me on that one, Glenn. Yeah, you guys will be ready for a break from one another <laughs> by the time that ends. Yeah, we, we can talk about the, Pel- the Pelicans game too. I, I guess we should get out of here, but uh it, it, definitely a fun game on Saturday. Let's just say. Hey, I can't. I, th- I, I think it's going to end up being like to me. This is one of the most like five anticipated games for me. A, a Saturday night game, a good Pelicans team, well coached. Uh, I hope that both teams can kind of come in as healthy as possible. I think it's going to be an awesome game. I can't wait to watch it. So yeah, looking looking forward to that. But I appreciate all the kind words as always, and appreciate your friendship, and always love talking basketball with you. And uh, you know, in the, whether it's or whether it's here where the the <laughs> that your viewership can kind of take it in. I'll always have a good time. Thank you, Glenn. I appreciate it. And we'll go back to uh, our more candid conversations in Slack and other places. But uh, as for everybody else, please subscribe to this podcast. Follow Glenn, uh, not not only here, but at Peachtree Hoops and on Twitter at Willis underscore Glenn and ATM29. Follow the show on Twitter as well at Locked on Hawks. And uh, yeah, we'll see you guys after the game on Saturday. Enjoy the rest of your week. And uh, it's a big one, as we just talked about on Saturday. Hawks, Pelicans, 730. That'll be fun. And we'll see you next time.